Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business with a deep-rooted heritage in oncology and a commitment to developing cancer medicines for patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the diagnosis and treatment of skull-based tumors with Dr. Bulent Ome. Dr. Ome is an assistant professor of neurosurgery at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at Yale and director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. You know, I didn't even know until about an hour ago that there was such a thing, an area as skull-based tumors. And I bet our listening audience doesn't have a clue. Uh, are you a surgeon? Yes, yes. So I, I'm, a, I'm a neurosurgeon. So mm-hmm. um, I was. Um, so neurosurgery is a specialty that deals with uh, diseases of the nervous system the, and the surgical treatment of them. And they're also the brunt of jokes like he's not, you know, this isn't neuroscience, right? This isn't neurosurgery. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, a skull-based surgeon is actually a, a subspecialty of neurosurgery, uh, and it the, uh, defines the neurosurgeon who deals with pathologies, and this is most of the time tumors, that, um, that arise at the base of the skull. Okay. And the reason it became a, a subspecialty is because um, the it's a very complex uh, area of the body where where the brain interacts with the rest of the body, and uh, the the skull base actually holds the brain, and it has a lot of um, foramina in Latin or like holes that cranial nerves, major vessels pass through, and it creates this very complex anatomy that requires another subspecialty to. Uh, to get trained and to have experience in it. I can imagine because I know that if I had been to a medical school where I had to actually take a test on those various holes in the base of the skull, for sure I would not be where I am today. Fortunately, I was a Yale medical student where it was kind of an open book test. <laughs> so I remember how complicated that was. Yeah, yeah. And there are common questions in tests. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a lot of holes, as I recall. Yeah. Um, so... Are these tumors arising out of the bone, or are they arising out of the brain tissue, or the lining outside the brain, or all of the above? Um, I guess the answer would be all of the above, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, the this area, the skull base, is, is essentially, a, 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 as I said, a complex area um, filled with different types of tissues. And that creates different types of cancers, essentially. So uh, tumors can arise from the brain itself, from the covering of the brain, dura, uh, they can be outside the brain or dura and er- uh, can arise from the bone, cartilage at the skull base level. It can arise from the cranial nerves that have just exited the brain. Um, and um, sometimes there can be like cysts associated uh, in this area. And sometimes there are some like uh, embryologic remnants that grow over time and create problems and act like tumors, again, in this area. Mm-hmm. You mean like um, leftovers of tissue that should have developed when the when the person was an embryo or fetus, and somehow that, that primitive tissue remained? 
Correct. Skull base and especially like midline skull base is, uh, is a common area that uh, these kinds of tissues can uh, grow and create problems. Huh. Well, now I'm kind of nervous. If I had a problem at the base of my skull, would I know it? Uh, so... Uh, I guess yes or no. <laughs> uh oh, <laughs> I was thinking it was an easy question. Yeah. So the um, th the way I end up uh, seeing patients in my clinic is like uh, there are like two different groups. One of them is the incidental diagnoses, which like a patient ends up having a brain scan, either a CT or an MRI of the brain for. Uh, let's say for a minor trauma, mm -hmm. gets involved in an accident, they scan the brain and find a lesion. Or bad headache or something like that, yes. right? Yes. Sometimes they have symptoms, uh, and that kind of prompts the imaging, and uh, a lesion is found that way. And that can be, as you said, headaches, um, or um, again, this area, because it's kind of uh, a, a, a tightly spaced area with different tissues and critical structures, uh, nerves that carry vision, optic nerves, um, um, or like nerves that involve uh, movements of the face, facial mm. muscles, or the sensation to the face. All these nerves are like closely packed in the skull base area. And any lesion, even small lesions uh, that start growing in that area ca can uh, interact with these structures and create symptoms like headaches, facial pain, uh, vision loss, um, and uh, sometimes um, uh, tumors that involve the frontal sinuses or the, again, the sinuses in the face, sphenoid sinus, uh, can uh, create problems with functions of the sinuses and the nose, like a blockade of the nose. Hmm. Uh, actually, there are a variety of ways that these tumors can present themselves. Hmm. So, in general, patients would be referred to you because somebody else has done a scan that showed a problem. True. Uh, yeah, most of the time, uh, when when I end up seeing a patient, they already have a scan done and have a have a preliminary diagnosis of a skull-based tumor. Mm -hmm. But we don't know at that point whether it's a malignant tumor or potentially a benign tumor or what it is yeah, in general. We don't. Um, uh, at least we don't know with accuracy. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, usually. It is possible to make a, make an educated guess about uh, what a tumor would be, mm -hmm. but uh, without pathological diagnosis, it's uh, it's impossible to tell for sure whether a tumor is malignant or benign. Well, uh, that sounds like that must be a very terrifying diagnosis for a patient to find out you've got a something bad at the base of your skull. Go see this guy at Yale; he's the face of skull surgeon. <laughs> oh, that yeah. just seems like that would be like really terrifying. Yeah, I mean, I um, I totally uh, uh, you know think about that when I when I interact with the patients uh, because uh, it's uh, I mean having a tumor diagnosis uh, is like one thing uh, it's it's bad uh, on its own but also ha having a tumor in this area which is which is very hard to reach uh, mm. uh, is like adds another level of complexity and anxiety on the on the patient level. Um, and uh, I do my best to kind of uh, uh, be, be clear to the patients that uh, you know this is uh, uh, this is going to be a, a a journey, and they need they need help from their family, and uh, and also they need to understand you know what we're dealing with, uh, and how we're going to deal with that you know in in, in detail. Mm. Because I think that is key to dealing with the anxiety of this situation, just understanding sure. what is going on. Right. So I imagine the first step must be to get a biopsy and find out what you're dealing with, or is that not the case? 
Um, so each each case is evaluated like individually in a way and somewhat like tailored to the patient. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them um, may require a biopsy, but sometimes we ha- we have enough evidence uh, that we we pretty much can uh, guess what the tumor would be. In that case, we may. Uh, proceed with uh, with the goal of resecting the tumor, not doing the biopsy so first. Taking it out completely. Correct. Taking it out completely. And uh, and uh, when we have a pathological evaluation afterwards, we will know what it is. I see. Uh, but regardless, when we, when we start the operation and first encounter the tumor, we send samples uh, to the pathologist uh, even before... Uh, proceeding with the removal of the tumor. Well, so while you're actually there and the patient's head is open. Yes. So the pathologist quickly reviews the slides and uh, gives us a, a, a most mostly reliable answer about what uh, he or she thinks this tumor is. Mm-hmm. And that uh, gives like another level of confidence to moving forward with the full removal of the tumor. Well, is there any circumstance under which you would not take the tumor out? Yes. So there are um, there are some scenarios where uh, we may decide to stop the operation at that point uh, because the tumor that we think uh, is is diagnosed at that point may be uh, treatable with medications. I see. Uh, so in that case, then the patient will not be subject to the potential complications of a of a of a resection removal of the mm-hmm. tumor, and we might just stop at that point and start medical therapy. So that might be if it's something like a lymphoma or something that's very responsive to treatment. Correct. Lymphoma is a typical scenario that uh, that happens in these. This is not a rare situation. This is not a common situation. It's very rare that it happens, because there are ways that we can uh, we can uh, guess that a lesion may be lymphoma before we plan mm-hmm. this, and we might just do a biopsy at that point. I see. So I'm still trying to get my head, so to speak, around <laughs> this complicated area, and I just can't imagine how, like, how do you go in there? Like, well, how do you do that safely? Because it's connected to the brain stem, which is connected to the spinal cord, and all those nerves that feed swallowing and the tongue and taste and hearing and all that stuff. That's like a such a poorly designed area evolutionarily, right, in terms of like, you know, if anything is going to go bad, everything goes bad right there, right? That is correct. It's Consciousness. Uh, I mean, it's a crazy place. That, that, is, that, is, that is totally true. So unfortunately, the anatomy is like very complex and unpredictable in a mm. way. So... Uh, each patient is different. So uh, first of all, we start with evaluating the patient's uh, images, the MRI scans, and and have an idea about like where the tumor is, what are the neighboring structures, what is it interacting with, and why are the symptoms uh, occurring the way they occur, and how can we approach this. So in skull-based surgery, the approach is kind of a very common theme, like how are we going to approach this tumor? Because sure. Um, there might be very critical structures between the surgeon and the tumor as we're approaching the tumor, and we have to approach it. You and you know? can't get there from the top of the head, right? No, no, we don't <laughs> want to go through the brain, <laughs> for sure. That sounds terrible, right? <laughs> yes. So uh, over the years, uh, like there has been like um, very innovative waves have been uh, ways have been developed to approach these lesions, and these are described as skull-based approaches. There are the conventional skull-based approaches, which require like big incisions over the 
uh, scalp or the face sometimes, uh, and big bony openings mm. that can give access to the surgeon uh, by navigating around these critical uh, neural and vascular structures and the brain uh, without manipulating them too much. So you like make a big window in the bone sort of? Correct. Correct. So that is the conventional way of spot-based approaches. But especially in the last 10 years, um, another method has arisen. So this is the, the endoscopic method to skull-based mm. approaches. So the, the idea or the strategy of the endoscopic method is to use natural corridors that already exist in the body, in the face and the, and the cranium, and uh, bring the actual like, light source and the lens that is required to do these surgeries uh, close to the pathology where the tumor is using these corridors and uh, make smaller op bony openings and use the endoscope, which is a, which is a, a very uh, innovative way of like, approaching these uh, and visualizing these lesions and do the resections uh, that way. So are you talking about going through some of those holes you talked about in the base of the skull or, uh, or no. through the sinuses or what are no, you doing? No, through the sinuses. So the, the typical approach the, uh, is the endoscopic endonasal approach, which means that the, the endoscope is, uh, uh, goes through the nose hmm. uh, and uh, go, goes through the sphenoid sinus most commonly. That's a sinus that's behind the nose kind of, right? Correct. So sphenoid sinus is essentially in the, uh, in the center of the uh, head, under the brain, and behind the nose. So it's almost like a, a, a natural uh, opening uh, to get access to the skull base without, wow. without going through the brain, without the need to retract brain. Hmm. So uh, this is done uh, uh, jointly with an ENT surgeon. So That's it would be a head and neck surgeon? Correct. So uh, the, the head and neck surgeon actually uh, does the nose part of the operation uh, and uh, brings the, uh, the surgical team like into the sphenoid sinus where the skull base is visible. Hmm. So uh, the, the top of the sphenoid sinus is uh, essentially the skull base. All right. Well, this is very exciting because not only do you get your tumor resected, but it sounds like you might get a nose job. But... Right now, we need to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about skull-based tumors with Dr. Omey. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a science-led biopharmaceutical company dedicated to partnering with leading scientific companies, organizations, and the community to improve outcomes for advanced cancer patients. More at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a Medical Minute about genetic testing, which can be useful for people with certain types of cancer that seem to run in their families. Patients that are considered at risk receive genetic counseling and testing so informed medical decisions can be based on their own personal risk assessment. Resources for genetic counseling and testing are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers. Interdisciplinary teams include geneticists, genetic counselors, physicians, and nurses who work together to provide risk assessment and steps to prevent the development of cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. 
I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Bulent Omai, and we are discussing the diagnosis and treatment of skull-based tumors. Uh, Bulent, just uh, before the break, I made this unfortunate joke about the head and neck surgeon. I guess it's really a plastic surgeon that would do the nose job classically, So, and I, it's not really funny to make light of what's a really serious problem, so I apologize if I offended anybody. I was just trying to make light. But uh, So you were giving us this fascinating story about how the head and neck surgeon puts the endoscope through the nose into this big sinus in there called the sphenoid sinus. And the, what you said right before the break was that the top of the sphenoid sinus is the skull. Is that right? That is true. Scary. That okay, is true. So, so do you take the roof of the sphenoid sinus off? Yeah, so at that point, uh, once we bring our endoscope into the sphenoid sinus, uh, which is this air-filled cavity which already exists uh, in every patient. I mean, are we talking about something that's an inch or half an inch or three inches? How big is uh, the sinus? Pro probably an inch. Probably tiny. An inch. That's yeah. tiny. Yeah. You can't even yeah. imagine. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's actually very variable, like from patient to patient, but it can be small, it can be large. Uh, okay. But it's, it's large enough so that we can bring our endoscope in and uh, get our instruments in there so that we can access the skull base. Are the instruments part of the endoscope or they're separate? They're separate. So they're in some other flexible tubey thing. Yeah, they're not they're actually straight. They're not flexible. Really? But, but they're very uh, they're very um, elegant long structures uh, 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 like designed uh, instruments that that help us do these surgeries. They must be tiny, right? Because they're going through They this, are. You're manipulating within this inch space or so, right? And they've got to be tiny tiny. They are. They are. They are. They are. Uh, they're, they're very small. Millimeters or. Um, yeah. The so. The, uh, for example, uh, the the scissors that we use the scissors. scissors. Yes, are probably uh, a couple of millimeters in uh, in length in a way. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. and how wide is the clip part of the scissors? Uh, so, uh, so they they are attached to this like long base right. that 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 comes out of the nose, and the surgeon is actually operating out of the nose in a way and using. I, yeah, uh, I imagine uh, with a, with a microscope or something or. So the endoscope. Yeah. So the endoscope is actually like in the sphenoid sinus, and uh, it it brings the light source and the lens like very close to the pathology. So there's. But a, you've got some goggles or some optical ways no, to look in, right? So, so it it creates this like high definition image and it's kind of projected into our monitors so we're actually TV you're doing TV surgery correct you correct. heard it here folks <laughs> your base of the skull is on TV correct wow yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's actually but I guess you can really blow it up big huh? right yes yes high yes. def TV no doubt no. correct correct I mean it creates like uh, very impressive images I can uh, imagine so uh, and so, go ahead please so once we're there, uh, and uh, we we also use a, a what we call a navigation system, uh, which is used like in in very different types of brain surgery, but it is very important in skull-based surgery as well. So this is almost like a. Um, like a typical uh, navigation device that I mean, like a GPS kind like of thing. Like a GPS, exactly. Uh, that tells us where we are uh, in the brain, in the brain, in the skull, and we can check another monitor to uh, to make sure that we are actually like uh, uh, in the place that we want to be on an MRI. So we kind of correlate what we are in actual reality to uh, where we are, where we would be on an MRI scan. But there's not an MRI machine in the room. No, there isn't okay. at that point. Mm -hmm. um, wow. So after all these like checks are done, we uh, we use a drill, almost like a dentist drill, that is like very small, uh, 
an elegant instrument that can uh, create a hole in the skull base. Okay. So once we uh, once we create that hole, now we have access to to the brain essentially, and what is like under the brain between the skull and the brain. Mm. So and then we uh, we proceed with the operation, and you know uh, once we get access, we remove the uh, the, the the pathology and. Um, and uh, at that point, we, we, we deal with the problem of closing the defect. So in skull-based surgery, there is always, um, there's always this uh, strategic problem of closing a skull-based defect. You've got a hole in there. Correct. And that hole is communicating with the nose. Oh. So that needs to be uh, closed. And together with... Superglue is not enough. It is never enough. <laughs> <laughs> so we usually use a, a vascularized tissue that is derived from the nose uh, and almost like a plastics flap that is created within the nose. Sort of like a graft, like almost like a skin graft, but Correct. it's using nose tissue? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then we use that graft to, uh, to close this defect in addition to other, uh, uh, other methods. But the graft is kind of key in these kinds of closures. So brain ends up being separated from the nose. Huh. And the brain, the, those tissues, like those membranes that surround the brain, do they grow back, or are they? You don't need them. Uh, they eventually heal. Mm-hmm. They eventually heal, uh, and especially this vascularized flap uh, is is the key to that healing process. Wow. Mm-hmm. So I know that in a lot of, or at least in some brain surgeries, from what I understand, you know, they keep the patient. Uh, partially awake so that they can make sure they stimulate a part of the brain and stuff. Are these patients awake with this base of skull surgery? Uh, no. So it is uh, that awake surgery is commonly done with uh, with actual like primary brain tumors, tumors that arise from the brain, brain tissue itself, that are close to critical areas of function like speech mm-hmm. or uh, movement. Or movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, in the skull base, uh, this is uh, never required. I uh, see. And we uh, we want the patient to be stable, uh, not moving at all, mm. because we are dealing with like very very small areas. Yes. So uh, actually, it's it will be almost like not wanted that the patient would be awake and have a have a potential of like moving. Well, how surgery. would you know if you by accident are nicking one of these nerves or other structures that you were telling us about the optic nerves for vision or these nerves that control the tongue or anything like that? I mean. Can you see them very clearly? So uh, we are using like various methods and technologies to kind of navigate through the skull base. One of them is the GPS system that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Direct visualization is ideal, of course, but it can't always happen because we are dealing with very small openings. And, and there's a tumor there in the yes, way, right? Yes, and there's a tumor there. So we are, we are using the navigation system that bases itself on the MRI. That's like one thing. We use small Dopplers that kind of tell us where the main vessels will be in real time. That's like an ultrasound machine? That's like an some? ultrasound machine that can track movement of blood. I see. So you're looking for the blood vessels that way. Correct. Uh-huh. So, so we stay clear from them. That's like one method. Knowledge of basic anatomy, how, how things look look at the skull base is also extremely valuable to the skull base surgeon because, for example, the optic chiasm has an impression on the skull base. You mean where the optic nerves separate? Yes, uh-huh. yes. And, and, and how the optic nerves move uh, in the skull base, they leave, they leave an impression. And the surgeon can like see and track that wow. impression and know that the nerves would be there if uh, the surgeon went deeper in that area. Well, this seems to me like it would be the 
sort of like pick the hardest job you can pick as a neurosurgeon, right? I mean, what was it that made you think, wow, that's what I want to do. I want to be there with the microscope and the endoscope and these teeny weeny scissors. I mean, how did you decide to do this? Um, well, uh, it, it was kind of like, you know, f- uh, probably like one thing after the other, like brought me uh, into in, into being a skull-based surgeon. Um, like once I started my neurosurgical training, uh, I always uh, was interested in brain tumors. Um, and uh, uh, as uh, as I progressed through my training, uh, which is long training, right? Yes, which is which is uh, which is long seven years of neurosurgical training. Right. Uh, then I did uh, 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 two years of like brain tumor fellowship, and uh, I did another like endoscopic skull based fellowship after oh that. Oh my gosh, that's a lot of years. <laughs> Yeah, it was, uh, but it's worth it, and that's uh, that's that's the reason people end up doing it because, like, uh, although it's a very challenging um, challenging uh, field in in surgery, and it's very challenging for the patients, uh, the rewards are also very high. Like, if uh, if one can help a patient uh, uh, from getting rid of a, a tumor in the skull base, uh, uh, it's it's a, it's a very rewarding feeling. Oh, I can only imagine. And, and can I ask, um, how many surgeons or surgeons and surgical assistants are involved in one of these? Is it just you, or it just sounds like you've got you've got your endoscope, you got your other thing, you got your ultrasound? You do it all yourself, or do you have an assistant? Or so um, I'm working in an academic center, and we have uh, neurosurgical residents course, uh, yes. that that that, uh, that help us do these operations and. Uh, as I mentioned, there's a there's a surgical team like which is uh, made up of a, an ENT surgeon and a neurosurgeon, mm-hmm. and uh, we have our own residents. So there are like four people who make the surgical team. Uh, then there is the uh, anesthesiology of uh, part of it. Uh, um, uh, they d- 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 that's that's like another team in the in the OR. And they're right nearby, right? They probably yes, yes. They're it's right all in the face. Yes, yes. Yeah. So cozy. Uh, <laughs> actually, we turn the patients, so they're actually at the feet of the table oh, with their monitors. Oh, okay. uh, so that's kind of how we work it out. And uh, and of course, there is the uh, there there is the surgical techs, the, the nurses, nurses course, and yes. all all the other supporting staff in the OR, which are very critical. And we have the pathologist who's there, like looking at the slides. Right there. Uh, I mean, in the same in the area. same area. Huh. Uh, uh, where the frozen room is, and uh, so there is there is that too. They're kind of indirect at that point, but they're still a part of the team. So it requires a lot of teamwork, not only in the OR but before and after surgery oh, as of well. Course. Yeah. So because we are dealing with all these uh, cranial nerves, and it's uh, it's it's a packed area full of different tissues, we have all these like different subspecialties, specialties I should say, get involved, which are like endocrinologists. Uh, ophthalmologists, neuro-ophthalmologists, uh, neurosurgery and ENT, uh, kind of in the in the middle of it, essentially. But also, uh, after treatment, depending on what the pathology is, the patient may require uh, radiation treatment, right. which will uh, include radiation oncologists or um, oncological treatment, which will require oncologists. Right. So it's a, it's a, it's a very big team, and it can, depending on the patient's specifics, it can uh, it can get bigger or smaller. <laughs> I can imagine. How long do these kinds of surgery take? I, I realize there must be a, a broad variety based on this location and how big the tumor is. What, what would be the range of such uh, surgery in terms of duration? So on average, the whole production 
uh, takes about like six hours mm-hmm. or so, but it can take uh, it can it can be much longer. Mm-hmm. I can imagine. It's, not, it's usually not shorter, but it can be much longer than uh-huh. that. <laughs> and uh, I assume that after you've closed the thing up, and the patient probably goes to a neurosurgical intensive care unit. I'm imagining. Yes. Right. And. Um, and do you keep them sedated for a while? Like when, how long is it before you know that they're going to be okay from a, from a neurologic function point of view, mm-hmm. talking and all that stuff? Um, so ideally, uh, and th- this is like most of the time, we actually wake patients up after surgery in the OR. Oh, no and kidding. And take the breathing tip out and examine them. Wow. Uh, uh, so uh, we don't usually keep them sedated. Wow. Uh, um, so they still go to the neuro ICU afterwards for monitoring because uh, we, we, uh, at least for 24 hours. Uh, but but we do wake them up and examine them immediately after surgery. Hmm. And they're not in pain or anything like that. No, they they uh, it's it's uncomfortable. I can uh, I have to admit that yes right. for the patient and not only because of pain but because uh, because when we do these surgeries through the nose their nose is blocked. And uh, that can be a little it's bit very uncomfortable. uncomfortable. I've, yes. I've had nose surgery, and it's yeah. really unpleasant. Yeah, that part's unpleasant. <laughs> like, what's in my nose? So, but like every day, they get they feel better, you know. Uh, and uh, but we 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 ask them to get get out of bed, start walking next day. So wow. they do. Sup- it's uh, usually when I speak to patients before surgery, they expect to be kind of knocked out in the ICU for a couple of days, but yeah. it's, it's usually not like that. And surprisingly, people tolerate it well afterwards. Amazing, and they don't really have, uh, they, you haven't shaved their head and they no. don't have any marks. There are no incisions done, you know, uh, everything is done inside the nose. Dr. Bulent Ome is an assistant professor of neurosurgery at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.